This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, why rising costs in Papua New Guinea are fueling calls for the government to devalue its own currency. Solutions very simple. Allow exporters to hold foreign currency accounts in PNG to incentivize people to bring their earnings back on shore. And high money transfer fees make it difficult for Pacific families working in Australia to send money home. But a new app is trying to help. Being able to access an app, some sort of a digital literacy tool, as well as a financial literacy tool. And we hear from Miss Pacific Islands 2023, Josie Nichols of Papua New Guinea. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Solomon Islands has awarded a Chinese state company a multi-million dollar contract to upgrade its international port. That sparked concerns that the project and others could be used as a front for foreign powers to extend security presence in the region. For more, we're joined by foreign affairs reporter Stephen Judgett. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, So what do we know about this uh, contract awarded to this Chinese state company in Solomon Islands? Well, this is actually part of a broader $170 million project uh, that the Asian Development Bank has uh, has funded in, uh, in, uh, in Solomon Islands to basically upgrade infrastructure. And the specific contract uh, that was uh, awarded to CCECC, which is a Chinese state-owned enterprise, is basically to upgrade the international port in the Honiara as well as a couple of other smaller wharves in other parts of the country. So this is not a Chinese government project or a Chinese aid project. It is instead uh, an ADB project, a a multilateral project, one funded with money from from across the world, from from countries across the region, including Australia, ironically. Um, And uh, what we have been seeing recently in the Pacific, or really for quite a a few years now, uh, is that Chinese state-owned enterprises are increasingly in a position to actually win these contracts. In some circumstances, like in this one, we believe, they're the sole bidder. In others, they offer simply a better price uh, than, than other bidders. So as Chinese aid has been falling in the region, as documented by, by the Lowy Institute and others, uh, what we are seeing increasingly is that their economic presence is, uh, is increasing, often through multilateral institutions like the ADB. And this project uh, in Honiara is a a good example of that. Mm. I mean, how does this fit in, Stephen, with the um, growing concerns about uh, China's presence in the region? Um, Have anyone come out or has has there been any concerns voiced about this? I I know Samoa's uh, Prime Minister, Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa, was in Canberra. Did she have anything to say about the project? Yeah, her response was quite interesting. In, in, in the first instance, I should say, yes, there, there are anxieties. This is being watched pretty closely. Now, of course, it, it is worth emphasising again, no one is suggesting that this is a covert Chinese operation or that this, is, this means that immediately we're going to see a Chinese military facility propped up in Honiara. Uh, it, it's, worth, it's worth being very clear about that. And it's also important, I think, not to be too histrionic uh, about it because there's, there's no suggestion uh, that this is a covert attempt 
to put a direct Chinese military facility in the heart of Honiara, which some people might conclude uh, if you if you look at the, the, the straight headline and don't dig into the details. This is an ADB project. But there are still anxieties uh, which have been voiced previously um, by the Australian government that have been voiced uh, just in the last day or so by analysts uh, and by some in the Pacific uh, about the fact that uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises like CCECC are increasingly having a hand you know, in major infrastructure. Now, the theory is that that will potentially make it easier for China to establish what are sometimes called dual-use facilities, ostensibly commercial facilities, uh, which uh, might in the future turn into or be engineered to be turned into a dual-use facility which could be used by, for example, the Chinese Navy uh, down the track as an informal military foothold. Now, that was actually a fear that, uh, prior, that the Prime Minister of Samoa um, herself voiced during the press conference. Now, it wasn't clear whether she was saying she had this anxiety, but she said basically uh, the fear is, this is a commercial project, she said, but the fear is that it might morph into a dual-use facility down the track. Now, she didn't really say whether that was her fear or the fear of others, including the Australian government. Uh, and she also was very keen to stress that uh, that uh, that it was, one, a sovereign decision for Solomon Islands, uh, and also pointed out, too, that uh, other powers, namely the United States, although she didn't name them directly, uh, also have military bases in the region. So it wasn't. It certainly wasn't uh, the prime minister coming out and condemning this development. But the fact that she talked so openly about this dual use possibility uh, and the anxiety around that around that shows that that that, that is a fear, and it's one that is reverber reverberating around parts of the Pacific, even if she doesn't herself necessarily believe that that's a fait complete. Yes, very interesting. I mean, let's hear from uh, Samoa's Prime Minister Fiume Mata'afa herself. Uh, we've got a, a, a short excerpt from her uh, talk to journalists yesterday. I think at, at the outset, we've all recognised, you know, the sovereign rights of countries to, to make decisions. This is a, a commercial port, although I think the fears are that it might morph into something else, what do they call it, dual purpose or something like that. I suppose we, we have to address that if and when it might happen. And that was uh, Samoa's Prime Minister Fiamme uh, Mata'afa there. And Stephen, as you said, she, she does um, talk about that dual purpose and, and says, you know, we have to address that if and when that does happen. doesn't sound like she gave any detail about what that addressing that means. Um, do you have any ideas about what she was alluding to? And, and like you said, are we seeing Pacific leaders speak a bit more openly about some of these concerns around China's um, presence in the region? Yeah, I, I think we are. It's a good question. I think we are seeing it a little bit more. I think more Pacific leaders are now speaking a little bit more openly, a little bit more regularly about some of these anxieties. That's not to say it's, you know, <laughs> that there's been a a transformation in the Pacific. Most Pacific leaders, understandably, still don't really have any interest or desire to weigh into the broader geopolitical contest. Uh, they don't. They certainly don't want to be perceived, or in fact, in reality, to take any sides here. Uh, and they they want to stress, uh, broadly speaking, uh, with a few exceptions, 
uh, that they are um, you know open uh, to a to a deeper relationship with China, particularly in the economic space. But I think we are seeing, at least when it comes to those 10 Pacific Island nations that have relations with China, of course, excluding those with relations with Taiwan instead, I think we are seeing Pacific Island leaders, um, many of them anyway, trying to restrict China more publicly and more deliberately into the economic space. Uh, there's a desire, um, we've seen this in the approach that uh, you know uh, we've seen in particular from countries like PNG, Vanuatu, uh, to strike security agreements uh, with uh, Australia. Uh, in the case of PNG, there's a very clear desire to say Australia is our economic and security partner, uh, China is our economic partner, but is not really our security partner. We believe you know, that security belongs in the Pacific family. Um, so increasingly, I think you are seeing a little bit more scepticism towards China, uh, and a bit more hesitation when it comes to China's full frontal push to broaden out its relationship. But the message from many Pacific Island leaders is, yes, China, please, we want an economic relationship with you. In fact, we want to boost our economic ties. You are an invaluable export market in particular to us, and we want to try and broaden those exports. We'll do everything necessary to increase that, including looking at more connectivity uh, with flights and the like to China. But let's not really turn this into a security relationship. Um, that's not something that we are necessarily comfortable with. And it's also something that potentially is deeply controversial in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, remembering, of course, that uh, Fiami Matafa herself was instrumental to pushing back last year on China's attempt to strike a 10-nation uh, trade and security pact with uh, with the Pacific. So there are exceptions to that dynamic. Obviously, Solomon Islands is the main one, and Manasseh Sokovare, who's uh, assiduously building up both economic and security ties with China. But I think it is fair to say there's been a bit of a shift in the Pacific, and increasingly Pacific Island nations are approaching, at the very least, security approaches from China with a bit more caution and trepidation. Mm. And just finally, Stephen, I mean, we, we're talking about China's security ambitions or potential security ambitions in the region, but, but Australia's has also come under some scrutiny, scrutiny as well, particularly when it comes to its nuclear-powered submarine deal, also called AUKUS, with the United States and, and the United Kingdom. Have Pacific leaders responded to this? Um, for instance, has, did the Prime Minister of Samoa weigh in on that at all? Yeah, it's actually been really striking to me, um, Priyanka, just how deafening the silence has been on this from, from most Pacific leaders. It's really interesting because we know, of course, that the Pacific has got a long legacy uh, of uh, advocacy on nuclear issues. Uh, we know that many Pacific Island countries, or a small number, but a number of Pacific Island countries uh, are still today grappling with the horrifying fallout from nuclear testing by Western powers, uh, including the the US um, and the UK in the in the 50s and 60s in particular, um, and of course uh, the uh, Treaty of Rarotonga is something that was pushed very hard, um, you know, by Pacific Island nations uh, in an effort to keep nuclear weapons um, out of uh, out of the region. So, when AUKUS was first announced, there was quite a bit of unease in the Pacific. Uh, some Pacific nations were were there publicly criticising Australia, were privately raising concerns about the uh, the fact that uh, this pact 
might see, you know, an increased uh, militarization of the region. That you're likely to see more nuclear-powered submarines uh, traversing the region uh, as a result from Australia moving up into its northern reaches and beyond. Um, since the formal announcement, though, more than a week ago in San Diego, uh, not a single Pacific leader has come out and publicly criticised uh, the uh, the pact and uh, requests that uh, the ABC anyway uh, have put into some Pacific leaders uh, have largely gone unanswered. Um, Simon Coffey, Tuvalu's foreign minister, did publicly raise concerns on social media, uh, talking about the, the fact that uh, it might ratchet up tensions in the region. Uh, not downplaying that, but that's pretty much it. And uh, Fiamme, when she was asked about it, uh, again, uh, was very deliberate not to, to criticise the government, saying that she'd spoken to Al- Anthony Albanese, Australia's Prime Minister, about it, that he'd given her assurances that it didn't undermine the Treaty of Rarotonga and that she, quote, understood Australia's strategic uh, calculus. Now, that's not an endorsement. You know, she was quick to say, this is none of my business, uh, but it's also not a criticism. And, and I do think it, um, that this probably reflects the fact that Australia has put an enormous amount of time and effort into briefing Pacific Island leaders and officials about what it's doing and why it's doing it. That doesn't mean that the Pacific is enamoured with this idea. My suspicion, personally, is that there are still quite a few deep reservations in the Pacific, but they seem to have made the calculation that they are not going to make any of these concerns public, uh, or perhaps in some cases they have been persuaded by Australia uh, that uh, that this is a justifiable thing to do, given China's massive military build-up in its own right. Either way, it's interesting that it's been such a muted reaction. Yes, interesting indeed. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time this morning. No worries. Thanks, Priyanka. And that was Stephen Judgett's ABC's foreign affairs uh, correspondent there. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. And it's a, a refrain we've heard quite often now, friends to all, enemies to none. We've been hearing a lot when it comes to the foreign policy of many Pacific islands. And indeed, it's this idea that may have prompted Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari to welcome to his shores three foreign delegations from China, Japan and the United States in the same week. But with growing geopolitical pressures, the rise of China and Russia's war on Ukraine, to name just a few, can this policy soon come undone? James Batley, former Australian High Commissioner to Solomon Islands and Distinguished Policy Fellow at ANU's, that's Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, shared his thoughts on the matter. This idea of friends to all, enemies to none is quite common in the Pacific. Uh, A number of countries have talked uh, in those terms in the past, including Papua New Guinea. Uh, Vanuatu has been uh, formerly a non-aligned state ever since independence. So it's not that unusual. You do get the sense in this case, though, that Solomons might have bitten off more than it can chew in some sense that, I mean, at one level... This policy looks to be very successful. There's a there's a succession of high level visitors uh, beating a path to the prime minister prime minister Solovari's door, uh, but at the same time I think uh, a number of Solomon Islands neighbours and not just Australia and New Zealand but a number of Pacific Island countries are concerned at 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 the rising level of geostrategic competition in the region and and. 
really, in a, in a way, Solomon Islands has brought this this attention uh, into the region in a very stark way. So that, yeah, I, I think there are concerns, um, and they're not just it's not just on Australia's part. I mean, you can say what you like about Manasseh Solovare, but I, I gather that he, he's a very canny uh, politician and negotiator. The, the US Indo-Pacific coordinator, Kurt Campbell, told a press conference in Honiara earlier this week that the US had not done enough for the Solomons, which is almost certainly an understatement. It's a similar message that Australia ha- has been trying to project over the last year, certainly under the Albanese government. So what does the US need to do now to show... Uh, it's stepping up and supporting uh, the, the Solomon Islands. Well, the US has, um, uh, it's true, belatedly, uh, they are establishing an embassy there after having closed it down a, a couple of decades ago. So that's a good start. Um, and I, I guess there's a range of things the US can do in terms of uh, assistance programs, uh, people-to-people links such as um, uh, things like the Peace Corps, uh, what the US will find is that this will take time, though, that, that uh, in the Pacific it's really important to have relationships and for people to see that those relationships are, uh, are genuine ones. Uh, so that does mean that, that this, uh, this will take some time, I think. Uh, Prime Minister Sogavare has sought to allay fears about the prospects of a Chinese military facility being built in its territory. Uh, but today it's being reported that a state-backed Chinese company has in fact won a contract to develop a key port there. Is this something that Australia should be concerned about? Not in a paternalistic sense, but just in a, well, this is in our backyard. We probably should be across it. Yeah, this, uh, again, this is not an unusual development. Uh, in recent years, there are now dozens of, uh, of Chinese state-owned enterprises working in and around the, in the Pacific and winning big contracts from, uh, from you know, uh, organisations like the Asian Development Bank, which has got uh, a lot of work uh, in the Pacific. Uh, so this isn't the first time something like this has happened, but it is certainly part of uh, part of a pattern that uh, that's we've seen a lot of. Uh, of course, this is you know comes on the back of Australia's renewed interest in the region more broadly. Uh, if you just joined me on RN Drive, distinguished policy fellow at ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific, and former High Commissioner to the Solomon Islands, James Batley is my guest. What has been the regional reaction to the massive AUKUS deal? You know that has dominated the headlines in recent days and weeks. Is it something that our Pacific neighbours are, are comfortable with? I think. The, the reaction's been a, probably, you could say, it's been mixed. But at the political level, I think political leaders in the Pacific uh, have been cautious. Uh, some of them have said, and well, more than one of them has said, yeah, we understand where Australia's uh, coming from on this. Uh, clearly, Australia has been working overtime to brief Pacific Island governments, as it has in Southeast Asia as well, about this, uh, the uh, AUKUS arrangements. And I think we've seen that, for instance, last week the Prime Minister uh, dropped in to see uh, Sitaveni Rambuka in Fiji to brief him in person. We've had the Prime Minister of Samoa in Australia this week and uh, she's met with uh, the Prime Minister. 
so it's been a bit of a full-court press, I think, uh, on our part. Uh, there are some voices in the Pacific that have expressed concerns about uh, about AUKUS. I think, on balance, this is manageable for Australia, though, uh, looking ahead. That was James Batley, former Australian High Commissioner to Solomon Islands and a Distinguished Policy Fellow at ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific. Now it's that time on Pacific Beat where we find out what's being making news and headlines around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans, as always. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now we have been uh, keeping uh, abreast of what, hap- what is happening in Vanuatu in, re- in regards to its citizenship deal. And now a new probe has been launched into the Citizenship Commission in Vanuatu. What was this to do with those uh, allegations of, of passports being sold to uh, to no good, no good people <laughs> around the world, is that? Yes, that's right. So rather concerning allegations are of corruption within the agency, mm. uh, and now a commission of in- in- inquiry has been launched to uh, to get to the bottom of it. So this is reported by the Vanuatu Daily Post, uh, and it follows those allegations that you mentioned, which were raised in Parliament recently, uh, that fake citizenship certificates are in fact in circulation, and even diplomatic passports are being issued for large sums of money. Mm, dear, uh, has the government actually? address these allegations? Yeah, they have. So uh, the PM, Ishmael Kalkasau, he, he assured Parliament that his office has already taken action to clean up the Commission's office. Uh, the Foreign Minister has also pledged to investigate those reports uh, of illegal diplomatic passport transactions. Um, he's even conceded that many have been issued to people who have not followed the correct oh, wow. procedures. So, yeah, I think the fact that they've, they've addressed that it is happening uh, is something. So let's hope they can uh, get it cleaned up soon. Yes, I, I, I can understand that um, Prime Minister Kalsakau might be in a a difficult situation with um, the amount of revenue, as we've been discussing, that comes in through these passports. Um, but indeed, if there are uh, people going around the correct procedures and um, circulating fake passports, as you said, uh, that that must be a concern. And and you know, money doesn't trump all, particularly in these situations. So, yeah, interesting to see how um, the prime minister and, and his government will respond to those those claims. Um, now let's head to Tonga. This is a very interesting story. A new power plant to capture renewable energy is being rolled out. What is it? The sun? The wind? <laughs> it's actually called a 10 megawatt wave power park. Um, oh, which waves. Is, which is not a water world theme park. Uh, which, which <laughs> wave power park, yes. It does sound like that. Jump to my mind. No, it's actually a new pilot project uh, to tackle high energy costs. Uh, and it will be built on the, uh, the, island, the island of uh, Tongatapu, the biggest island out there. And basically this technology can capture the energy generated from waves coming into the shores uh, and turn that uh, into electricity. That's crazy. I didn't even know you could generate electricity from waves, the motion, I guess. Yeah, no, it's it's quite unbelievable, especially sort of how it works, which I'll get into a bit later. But um, but yeah, so Tonga's Minister for Internal Affairs announced the first stage of the project uh, while in New York this week. And uh, apparently that first phase alone, which is only two, which is only uh, two, two megawatts, that will replace two million litres of fuel uh, and provide enough power for 3,000 homes uh, and reduce the country's emissions by 20%. 
Wow, it sounds like it's too good to be true. You said you, you were going to explain how it works. So how does it work? Yeah, so it's a series of 12 generators, uh, apparently, and it actually stands on the on on the seafloor, uh, but it causes no damage and there is no piling uh, or drilling. Almost sounds like magic, if you ask yeah. me. Um, so, yeah, it is environmentally safe. Uh, it even has an innovative base that was specifically designed for marine life to shelter and breed in. And uh, if all goes to plan, it'll be commissioned in 24 months' time. 24 and so two years. That, yeah, it does sound too good to be true. I mean, but, but I mean, we just had the latest IPCC report on climate change and it did say we have the technology that exists today for us to be able to cut uh, emissions to keep mm-hmm. below that 1.5 degree warming that we're all being warned about. Um, maybe this is one of those technologies that we have, we can use, but we just haven't yet. Let's, let's hope it's as good as it sounds. Now look, if there's a time to get innovative and, uh, and swing for the fences to reduce, reduce emissions, I think uh, I think the time might be now. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised considering it has, how nice it sounds. <laughs> Design, what did you say? There's some, some spots for marine life to grow in yep. it as well? I mean, it sounds, yeah, way good to, too good to be true, but let's see what happens in, in the couple of years as it comes to fruition. Um, now to some boxing news. Two boxing legends will square off in Papua New Guinea later this year. Who are they? I didn't know boxing was such a big thing in PNG. Yeah, well, that's a, neither did I, as a matter of fact. It's not historically, but um, but no, it hasn't stopped uh, Australian Anthony Mundine and oh, wow. uh, and Filipino legend Manny Pacquiao uh, from potential, potentially uh, organising a fight uh, in Port Moresby um, later this year. There Even be... I know those names. Yeah. They're just saying something. <laughs> they must be big. No, two, two massive names. So this is reported by RNZ uh, yesterday. Today and it's actually being billed billed as a uh, Las Vegas night in the Pacific, uh, yeah. the Pac Man versus the Man, uh, with the winner becoming the undisputed Man. Um, <laughs> apparently, according according to Mundine, anyway. So yeah, look, both both former flyweight and middleweight champions, uh, Pacquiao himself, eight time world champion. Everybody knows him. Uh, on paper, it does look great. However, look, both are well into their 40s mm-hmm. now, so there is some speculation that it, it is nothing more than a payday. I was going to say that. They sound like legends, but also old, <laughs> older sort of legends. Um, so if it does all come together, do we know when, when it could happen? When are they thinking? Yeah, so the month that's floating around is June. Uh, however, that hasn't been confirmed yet. Uh, there's a little bit online floating around from Anthony Mundine, but I haven't seen anything from Pacquiao himself. I mean, he, he's currently a, a senator these days, I, I think, uh, within oh, the really? Phil- Philippines, so he's a busy man. Um, um, but look, if it does get up, it obviously would be a potential tourism injection um, for PNG. It wasn't that long ago that Pacquiao drew fifty thousand to Brisbane uh, when he fought Jeff Horn. I think that was back in twenty seventeen or something. Oh. So yeah, look, it'd still be, a, I think, a good thing if it gets up. It's just a shame that it's twenty twenty three and not two thousand and three. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, it's very interesting. And I wonder how these things work. I mean, who who actually foots the bill for for bringing them over and and stuff mm. is is quite interesting. Um, yeah, but if you're a boxing fan in Papua New Guinea. would love to hear what you think about a potential match between Mundine and Pacquiao there in Port Moresby. Get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. would love to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle, thanks for the stories. Thank you, Bianca. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific, but don't go anywhere. Uh, Coming up on this show, we'll be looking at Papua New Guinea's economic uh, difficulties. Some people say it's to do with foreign exchange restrictions. We'll hear why coming up and we'll also chat to the newly crowned Miss Pacific Islands. That's all after this short break.
Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. This is ABC Radio Australia. I hope you're having a lovely Thursday morning. Thanks for tuning in to Pacific Beach. Papua New Guinea's government is being urged to devalue its own currency and lift restrictions on foreign exchange reserves. Otherwise, economists say consumers will face an increase in the price of goods and services, which will have major impacts on families. As Belinda Cora reports, the warning comes as two large PNG businesses threaten to close down. Times are tough in Papua New Guinea for businesses and consumers. But economist and Lowy Institute fellow Maholopa Lavelle says alarm bells have been ringing for some time, pointing to a 2014 survey by PricewaterhouseCoopers highlighting the shortage of foreign exchange. And so that really speaks to the fact that um, there's a lot of backlog um, in forex orders to the commercial banks and the Bank of PNG, which is its prerogative to issue um, foreign exchange uh, to the commercial banks, and then they address those orders. That has not been adequate to meet uh, the backlog in orders. So uh, we've seen, at least recently, that there is a backlog of about 2 billion pina, which is roughly about 1.2 to 1.3 billion US dollars um, in orders that are not met. Although the Bank of Papua New Guinea has increased its issuing of foreign exchange notes, he says it's still not enough. And um, the Bank of PNG which has about uh, 11.6 billion Kenyan foreign reserves, has increased its monthly forex issue from about 60, uh, sorry, yeah, 60 million US dollars to about 100 million US dollars. But that still will not alleviate um, the, uh, the backlog in forex orders. And so uh, that has fed into the fact that uh, we know anecdotally that companies operate at about 25 to 30% of their operational capacity. And that has fed in also to the fact that formal sector employment has fell year on year, at least except 2018, to about 15% lower than its um, 2013 level. So all of this has stemmed from the Bank of PNG or uh, PNG Central Bank's insistence on keeping uh, the Kina at a crawling pegged rate, which is essentially at a uh, fixed level rate and has not allowed it to depreciate uh, to reflect its true value. Meanwhile, the Manufacturers' Council of Papua New Guinea is concerned the government isn't doing enough to address the challenges faced by businesses. Shay Scovell is the CEO. Um, and even senior public servants that say they want to, you know, um, have competitive industries in Papua New Guinea. The issue is, is that when we talk about the problems, very little gets done. So if we if we look at, you know, um, the high level issues, foreign currency, this has been going on since June 2014. The solution is very simple. Allow exporters to hold foreign currency accounts in PNG to incentivize people to bring their earnings back on shore. We've had a, we continue to have a significant trade 
trade surplus, but we've got a chronic shortage of uh, foreign currency coming into the country. Nobody's bringing it back. This, he says, contributes to a lack of business confidence. By the fact that businesses have not been able to pay dividends for, you know, um, eight and a half years now, nine years, uh, and also businesses, you know, their, their sales are down, you know, 10, 20, as much as 50% simply for the fact that they can't get enough of the uh, the inputs that they require to run their business. Consumers are already feeling the pinch and says the cost of living is souring in most major cities and towns. As a working female living and working in Port Mosby, my biggest fear in terms of the rising cost of goods and services is the, the increase in social issues and um, when I say social issues, I mean law and order and um, other social issues like prostitution, particularly law and order. My greatest, uh, my greatest fear right now is, like I said, is unemployment spiking at uh, you know a record high. And if I mean, when I say record high, I, I don't even know if you got data to actually back up how much unemployment we have in the country at the moment. And uh, in regards to that, my greatest fear right now is the closure of industries or the stalling or the stagnancy of industries. We need industries to. Be running and thriving, and it cannot happen at the way we're going right now. Maholopa Lavelle says the government can do more to protect the interest and consumers from such a very crucial economic time. So, government can do more by directing uh, the Bank of PNG to give a little more quickly. Um, it was government's direction from the fuel crisis that we saw. Um, Puma Energy, uh, at least the fuel shortage that Puma Energy brought about because they weren't accessing enough forex for the jet fuel and for other fuel more generally. And so it's directed Bank of PNG to release um, from 60 million to 100 million US dollars every month. And so it's really incumbent on the bank of, uh, on government to direct BPNG to actually um, address these forex issues, either through a devaluing of the Kina or I'm releasing more forex um, on a month-to-month basis. Um, government can do more um, in that it can accelerate its um, resource deals um, and also um, re- receive more of its loans and uh, grants up front, which is a difficult ask. But all of this um, is to say that if it receives more um, foreign direct investment and more grants and loans denominated in U.S. dollars, then it can um, increase the foreign reserves that it has parked with the Bank of PNG, and therefore then it can increase the month-to-month issue of U.S. dollars. And that was a PNG economist, Mahalopa Lavelle, ending that report from Belinda Cora. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. An online platform aims to help people more efficiently send money to family and friends in the Pacific. The New Zealand and Australian government-funded app and website allows allows users to compare remittance fees between companies by sending money to the islands. But with the Pacific experiencing some of the highest money wire costs in the world, how will the program make sending funds easier? Sydney-based uh, D. Rangvin, Program Manager of Empowering Migrants Through Pacific Remittances, explained. Basically, Send Money Pacific is the official money transfer comparison service for the Pacific Islands. And it's supported by the Australian and New Zealand government. So it's a wonderful initiative. It's a free service for the community. And really, 
what is behind all of this is the remittance literacy side of things. So we really want to be able to um, have the Pacific communities involved, um, you know, being able to access an app, some sort of a digital literacy tool, as well as a financial literacy tool. And the Pacific region, I believe, is one of the most expensive destinations to send remittances to. That's right. So what we have found from the World Bank um, study is that the Pacific communities pay some of the highest rates in the world compared to other countries and communities. So we base a lot of everything on this information. Um, and what a lot of the Pacific community don't realize is that they are actually being charged higher than the rest of the world. Um, so th the one key thing is understanding that um, every time you send money, there's charges involved. Whether it's something that they can visibly see, which is a fee, or whether it's, um, you know, the margin on the exchange rate, uh, which is added to the cost of sending money. So when we are able to evaluate a number of providers, you can see the comparison. Okay, this, this provider has an X amount of fee, but oh, there's actually a margin of exchange rate added. So therefore, the true cost of sending remittances, we display this all. Um, it's a transparent website and app that workers um, that are coming here can actually have access to seeing other providers and then the cost of sending. And they then can have the freedom to choose and maybe switch to another provider. That's the same for all the community diaspora. A lot of the communities we talk to are very loyal. They stick to one provider. And sometimes because they're not, they haven't planned it, there's an emergency. They're just sending it straight away to the one that they know. Um, and in some cases, they charge high fees, you know. Also, you can toggle between cheapest and fastest. So users can actually, they may never have heard of some of the providers. There are some new ones that have come on. And what we find is that the communities are very surprised at the amount of options that they have. A lot of the workers are also learning. So this is a learning process altogether. When workers come to Australia, we want them to be able to access this in language. So the best feature about the app and the website is that we have everything translated, specifically for those who, you know, where English is not the first language and they want to feel at home. And how much can they save in those fees? They can definitely save in fees. What they need to understand is this is not a money transfer service. Send Money Pacific is a, the official comparison, money transfer comparison service. So what it does is it provides a list of all the different money transfer operators out there, including banks. Um, and so they can actually pick the ones that they actually feel comfortable with. Now, we've been told that the market share of these newer options is quite low. And part of that is to do with connectivity issues on one hand, but also digital literacy issues. How are you hoping to address that problem? I think, look, it depends on what the, the nature of that is, because of that issue is. If it's a If it's the fact that um, that provider is just not available or they don't have, uh, you know, people need access to that service, they need connectivity in those remote islands. Um, but as soon as they have internet, 
and they can actually connect and do and learn about how do I um, pick this money up through, through a mobile wallet instead of having to travel all the way into town. So if they can understand, so sender and recipient have, you know, obviously that communication between them. And sometimes the decision that the sender makes is dependent on the recipient. Where, where can I pick the money up? So the greater awareness that the sender has from Australia and New Zealand that they can relay to their family back home, there is a new provider, you can pick it up from this um, location, which one's easier for you? And then that sender, the recipient in the island can actually, you know, communicate that back and say, look, I can actually access that or I need to learn how to download the app uh, for the operator at my end. So there's a bit of what we're finding through our Talanoa sessions with community is that there are differences between what services are available in Vanuatu compared to what is available in Samoa, the level of digital literacy that's required to access the service. So there's a gap that we have to close in learning. So this, the next remaining years of this program, um, empowering migrants through Pacific remittances, is about that knowledge and knowledge sharing and learning. And what we are trying to do is educate um, have coaches that can actually articulate this information to people. We want to make sure everything's available online. We have voice narration videos that guide people through in language on our social media page. And you can scroll through and see those videos and people can listen to them in language. And the voice narrations, we're making sure that there are a lot of women and men involved in this program and we found through our research that women are the ones that you know at the receiving end who manage the household so we want to make sure that we're getting this information out through to the key people so that those in the remote islands don't have to always travel to pick up money they may be able to have options that's adi aragavind speaking there to dubrovka volida you're listening to pacific beat this thursday morning Growing up in Papua New Guinea, beauty pageants weren't really on the radar for Josie Nichols. That's until she became a fashion designer for a former contestant. Deciding to try the world out herself, she immediately went on to win Miss PNG and then this year's prestigious Miss Pacific Islands title. Our reporter Jordan Fennell caught up with Josie Nichols to find out how she's navigating her skyrocketing success. I didn't hear about the pageant until I got to university. I was more into my education and own interest before the pageant. But my mom did say when I was seven years old, I remember, she did say that you should be Miss PNG one day. And I'm like, I had no idea because I was just a child. I think that manifestation of hers came to life when I got to uni and learned about the pageant and allowed myself to get involved. And yes, I think that's where it all started. Once you were in university, how did you get involved in the pageant world? One of my friends of Miss Pacific Island 2018, Miss Leoshina Karihan, she took part in the Miss PNG pageant, and that's where I learned about it. And with my interest to sew and my passion for fashion, the chairperson of the Miss Pacific Island pageant PNG, Mrs. Molly O'Rourke, she got me on board to be her designer. 
that's where I learned more about the pageant. So but, interesting. So you got to see the behind the scenes before yeah, you even competed. I always enjoyed it. So that's how it started. And then after that, I decided why not join the pageant. So I... I did for the provincial pageant, came on to the Miss PNG, and now the Miss Pacific. Yeah. Went through my passion for fashion. And fashion has been a big part of your journey from the beginning of your pageant career. When you were competing as Miss PNG, you designed all of your own costumes. How important was that to you to have fashion be a part of your pageant process? That period was a very exciting period because I had my whole family involved and my creatives behind the scenes. But I had two inspirations that I used during my outfit or garment constructing. Um, the first one is my grandmother's tattoos, my late grandmother. So most of my designs came from her tattoos that represented our clan and I transitioned from a young girl into womanhood. So I thought it would be nice to use those tattoos as a tribute to her. So I did that for some of my outfits. And the other are PNG inspired designs where I had to incorporate a little bit of PNG significant items like the kundu and my traditional attire onto it because I thought it's a national platform and I'm going to represent PNG. So why not put some PNG designs on? And then once you were crowned Miss PNG, you were then part of the running to be Miss Pacific Islands, be a part of that pageant. That pageant was held in Samoa and you went on to win it. How did it feel to win? At first, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't believe it. But it was amazing. I felt so good after because it really paid off all the hard work and tireless efforts that my team put into preparing me for the event. It all paid off. So it felt really amazing. And it I believe it's an achievement for myself as well as my team and the country as a whole. And now the Pacific. So I'm truly honored and humbled and excited for this role. I see this a responsibility now that I have to take and I look forward to continue my work of service to my people and the beautiful Pacific region. So I'm excited and it feels good. Now as Miss Pacific, your focus has turned from fashion to tourism as an ambassador for tourism for the whole region. Tourism, of course, plays a huge part of the Pacific's economy. What is your particular focus for this year in that area? So I... As a tourism cultural ambassador for the Pacific and a representative of my nation, I would promote tourism whilst I'm performing my roles outside. And I hope that I can contribute to really bringing more tourists into Papua New Guinea by promoting it over the social media platforms. It's a beautiful place to visit and we can only promote it by reaching out to the other, to the world outside and sharing a little bit about it. What part of PNG is most significant and special to you? Well, one of my favorites would be the Medan province in itself because it has amazing coral reefs and pristine blue waters like all around. And it has a lot of diving locations. And have you gone diving in the Medan province? Oh, yes. I went to school there, so... <laughs> Can you describe that- what it's like to go diving in that area? Oh, it's amazing. Like during my studies at Divine World University, I had the opportunity to go out to the islands and do a little bit of diving. 
and the reefs are so deep. We get to see all kinds of school of fish and a lot of tourists out there just enjoying themselves. But my favorite part would be the islands and the coral reefs around it because we get to see different species of fish and all of those things and the beautiful corals as well. Some of them have not been seen by the world yet. So I believe that if you come and see for yourself, you're going to love it. Earlier you said that when you were young and growing up in Medang, that pageants weren't really on your radar. Now that you hold the title of Miss Pacific, what role do you think Pacific pageants play in the lives of young women and especially in PNG? I think holding a role like this really gives a sense of drive to all the young women in PNG and I believe the Pacific because it gives them the sense of responsibility for themselves as well to thrive in whatever whatever they're passionate about and what goals they want to achieve in their lives. So it shows them that if these women can do it, if I can do it, you can do it and set your mind to achieving it, whether it be on best ambitions, a particular activity, or your responsibility towards others. So I believe that this title, whether it be a country title holder or the Pacific region, really gives women that strength and shows them that they are strong, powerful, intelligent, and are unique in their own talents and abilities, and they should all be celebrated. That was the reigning Miss Pacific Islands, Josie Nichols, speaking there to our reporter, Jordan Fennell. And with that, we come to the end of Pacific Beat. Thanks for your company this Thursday morning. Tune in. News is next and have a lovely day.